Welcome to RICC Radio Community News, that's episode 24. I'm Mick Handy. Later in the podcast, we talk with Mary Lynch, who was commissioned by the South Inner City Drugs and Alcohol Task Force to do research on increasing understanding of mental health. But first, I spoke with three members of the staff at Troyer, spelled T-R-E-O-I-R. That's Sinead Murray, Emma Bourne, Samantha Dunn. And first, I asked Sinead Murray, Information Membership and Communications Officer, to tell us a little more about the service. Yeah, so we're a charity that supports unmarried parents in Ireland. Um, so we provide an information line on social media and over the phone and email um, for parents to ask questions about um, access, custody, social welfare um, and guardianship issues. So it's for unmarried parents? Unmarried parents. So that would be lone parents. It would be parents who are living together and raising a child or parents who are co-parenting together as well. I suppose looking at Ireland as a whole, kind of, yeah. the family life has changed over the last number of decades as well. And I suppose that can be a big challenge for you, is it? Yeah, so I mean, in a way, it's really um, shown that Ireland has changed because we're seeing more and more children are born outside of marriage. Um, CSO results show that every year. Um, so it, it also shows for our policy work that, you know, we need to change some of the legislation around giving more rights to unmarried parents because the situation is different for a married parent versus an unmarried parent right now. And I suppose with that in mind as well, do you have solicitors, barristers, are they involved with the... With the, the yeah, I mean, we, we because would... Because of the, the way family life... So know. we don't have any solicitors on staff, but we work with um, a lot of organisations like FLAC and Community Law and Mediation to get legal advice about situations. Um, and recently we had a case with FLAC in relation to John O'Mara, who is a cohabiting couple himself, who's taking a high court case about discrimination by the Department of Social Protection. So that would be the kind of work we would do with solicitors. And... I'm sure more and more people you've, you you have to go down that legislation with more and more couples. Do you? Yeah, I mean it is it is um, the John O'Mara case is really interesting that way because it is a bit of an um, an exception that you know in a lot of ways um, unmarried parents aren't meant to be discriminated based on the marital status and children of unmarried parents aren't either, but this is one of the things that was still being discriminated against by the Department of Social Protection. So that is something that we just still have to pursue and also looking at a constitutional referendum. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Article um, 41 of the Constitution basically puts marriage above, um, is the protection of the married family as opposed to any other type of family. So we're looking to say that Ireland needs to be more inclusive given that the population is shifting and we have lots of more parents and people decide not to get married anymore but still having children and their rights need to be protected just as much as married families. And of course, the United Nations Convention of Rights for Children is there as well. So yeah. where did the two marry or where did they where are they apart really? Um, yeah, and I think the, the UNCRC really kind of allows us to inform current legislation. And but by and large, like the Constitution really does inform legislation. And um, I think the UNCRC is, is, is a way of highlighting where the, those indiscrepancies are and where those inequalities lie within policy. And obviously it's, it's our jobs in this sector to raise, um, you know, the impacts of those various different Legislation. I think Emma will talk a little bit maybe about, about kinship care families and how there's a there's there's invisibilities in various different 
And as Sinead has said, I mean, I think really what we're looking at is Ireland has changed so much. The family makeup is not the nuclear family anymore. It's far from it, you know. So and I think really the constitution needs to needs to really catch up on that. It's our job, obviously, to raise these issues and try to have legislation changed. But I think the most important part of, you know, any sort of reformer in the family is within the constitution. And that's what the John O'Mara case really raises, you know. Yeah, that's going to be quite interesting, it has mm. to be said, because, you know, life has changed. Family life has yeah. definitely changed. And, and And looking at it nowadays, we, we've got, as you said, so many children being born kind of outside of marriage. Mm. There's also we have... Uh, the gender has changed mm-hmm. in many ways, yeah, same absolutely. gender, yeah, couples absolutely. as well kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, that's huge challenging kind of thing. And, and for yourselves, kind yeah. of, do, do you find that you have to, you know, get together and change, move with the times in many ways? Yeah, well, the service certainly um, responds to, you know, a lot of the various different questions that are raised when, you know, different different family types. Because we have um, parents that are in, that are outside of marriage and they and they and, and they live together, so they're cohabiting couples. So they'd have various different questions around, you know, how their how um, the the revenue works, how taxation works, and how social entitlements. Because in 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 essence, really. The revenue will treat you like you're not a married couple when you're living together, but the social welfare department will treat you like you are. So it's it's kind of you know you're losing you're you're losing out in both areas there if you're not married. So there are a lot of people that you know would ask the question: Are we better off getting married? So we're so you really have to look at that you know Mick. You really have to kind of ask yourself: Is legislation you know, or the lack of legislation for you know, for unmarried people a reason to actually choose to get married. They should have a right not to have to do that, you know. So it's it's around looking at all these different areas. And when you say when we come together, yeah, there are various different organisations that are all saying the same things. But again, it comes down to that legislative change, the constitutional change, you know, and it's accepting that we have modern families now. This this is what Ireland looks like. You know, you have kinship care families, you have same sex couples. You know, you have blended families, like more and more. We're seeing lots more blended families now. Um, and the blended families where, you know, you might have you might have a couple who split up and they had their children. They go off, they meet other people. They, they, you know, they partner up again, they couple up again, and they might have children of their own. So it's bringing, you know, it's like two or three sets of families together in a blended unit. You know, so it's recognizing that they're they're you know significant changes now. Complex, so is it? Very mm. complex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's very contradictory as well yeah. as, as Sam was saying and as Sinead was saying because we do have you know international frameworks promoting the rights of the child and promoting diversity in family types, but we still have a constitution that thinks or says or promotes marriage as the the common good. The unit of the basic unit of society is the married family um, and that hasn't caught up you know so so we have all these kind of competing agendas like we you know we have protections of children's rights in our own constitution now mm. since the since the referendum in 2012 mm. so we're supposed to be making all decisions in consultation with children and in their best interests but there's still like family law which is what you were saying earlier is where chore would touch off in, in most of our work family law still hasn't caught up with that like we still have very little kind of meaningful ways of giving children a voice in the family law system. 
Um, and then we have straightforward, we would say, uh, cases of discrimination like the John O'Mara case that Sinead mm-hmm. described, where you have a set of children who, because their two parents didn't get married, they might be together longer than the people next door who are married, but mm-hmm. the state mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. credit that. So it's not about really honouring people's lives. It's really just about imposing this kind of, um, you know, I suppose it's it's more of a philosophical kind of a commitment to marriage as, as a social good. Um, And in a way, even though we were very progressive in voting in equal marriage and voting in same sex marriage, in a way, we kind of strengthened the protection of marriage by doing that rather than challenging um, it. Because one of the things that isn't there anymore is the option for civil partnership. So we did have up to the marriage referendum, the option for people to enter enter into a civil partnership instead of a marriage if they wanted that. but now that we've actually strengthened the protection of marriage by extending it to more people, we've actually no longer got that option. So if you don't want to get married as a couple now, there's no option really apart from just living together. Yeah, true yeah. enough, true enough. Same old, same old. <laughs> Emma, you're, you're, you're involved in, in kinship care. Can you explain what kinship care is? Yes, yeah. So it's a, it's a term that's not kind of easily understood in the Irish context, even though we've been doing it for generations. Mm. And it refers to really situations where... Uh, relatives or or close family friends step in in a situation where parents can't uh, manage or can't function as parents and so I mean in communities like this no more than other communities around Ireland people are probably familiar with the practice of it and it happens for a variety of reasons you know a lot of the families that contact us it would be because they've been affected by substance misuse um, so the granny steps in or the auntie steps in or sometimes even the older brother or sister is the kinship carer um, it can also happen obviously if somebody dies in a family and a family member steps in and it can happen in situations where there's just maybe mental health challenges or physical illness or you know other challenges so it's um, we, we've no way of knowing how many families in Ireland are, you know, are actually in kinship care um, because it's very very invisible as Sam was saying earlier kinship families are one of those types of families that are very much in the kind of grey space um, because they're not and, and, and the risk about that is that they don't you know readily have access to resources so if you were to become a foster carer to somebody in the formal care kind mm, of system yeah. you know you get an allowance as you should and you get supports from the child and family agency to make sure that that child or young person is getting their needs met but if you're a granny or an auntie or an uncle or you know a granddad or whoever who steps in there's really nothing for you from the state to honor the commitment you've made why do you think that is i don't know it's a little bit like the debate we were having there about marriage you know it's almost like we're saying it's your job Um, like there's no mention in the constitution of anybody other than a parent being responsible for a child Mm. but yet the system seems to make family members responsible and um, like sometimes I would compare it to the situation of, say, elder care, you know, where there's a lot of people doing that Absolutely, at home, yeah, but they're yeah. doing it very much without recognition or without support, you know. So very similar issues, you know, they don't get any respite, kinship carers, even though there could be grannies and granddads in their 60s and 70s mm. and their parent and teenagers. And like those of us who've been through that experience in our 30s and 40s <laughs> are That's already right, exhausted yeah. from it, never mind doing it in your <laughs> 60s and 70s. So. Um, yeah, so part of our work, as well as talking to individual kinship carers who are looking to find out how they can get support, part of our work is to lobby um, government and, and the Child and Family Agency to say, look, there's a whole cohort of families out there who, if they didn't step in, your job would be a lot harder. So they do need some recognition. And I presume you're doing that at the moment. The lobbying is, is yeah. carrying on. But 
How's that going, Claire? Well, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> we have a decision to make, I suppose, on one level. We've only been, within kinship care, we've only been um, working specifically with kinship carers now for just over a year. So, I mean, we're trying to work collaboratively, as we all know in communities, that's where it's at. And we're trying to work in partnership with the state agencies who are responsible for child welfare and child protection. Um, but like you know there could be a time when we will have to go into the doll and other places and do some serious lobbying and really encourage these families to come out and into the light and say look this is what I'm doing and it's costing me a lot you know like we Absolutely, have yeah. people contacting us and you know they're in serious financial hardship because children are not are not cheap and there's a lot of talk at the moment about how much it costs to get them back to school and how mm. much it costs you know so mm. the only social welfare payment that a kinship carer can look for is a, the guardian's payment um, and it's it's not easily got it's quite a difficult process because the Department of Social Protection need to be clear that the child in question has been abandoned and that's not always clear because as you were saying earlier people's lives are complex and if you have a yeah. if you have an adult child in substance misuse the chances are they're coming and going a bit from your home mm-hmm. or they're you know you're trying to continue to support them um, and if the DSP sees that as a parent actually still being around to some extent they can deny the guardian payment to the person who's caring so so we've a bit of a way to go, uh, to put it mildly. Mm. And are you a 26 county or 32 county organisation? Towards the National 26 county. 26, yeah. 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 And I suppose it's, it's every area of, of the country. Or like Dublin, obviously, we have, what, a million and a half people here. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Probably has, has the most density, has it, of, of all? Yeah, definitely. And certainly in terms of kinship care, and I know Sam will talk about mm. the Teen Parents Programme, but for kinship carers, it does seem to be more prevalent in urban areas. And, you know, obviously there is an association with some particular social issues like substance misuse. Uh, but there's also cultural practices like the traveller community would have a lot of kinship care within it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what we have found is traveller families are sometimes the least likely to c- come forward to look for support um, or to identify because they're probably the most fearful around maybe having mm. the children in question taken into care. Mm. So it's a very informal. So there's a lot of fear as well about um, about the kind of families um, that we support. Mm. And a lot of diversity in the country as well. I think the last yeah. time I was at a, a volunteering Ireland uh, seminar, I think they said there was over 200 different nationalities mm. in Ireland. Now, yeah. that was probably pre-COVID, so the chances are there's probably a lot, uh, uh, as, you know, 10, 15 more yeah, uh, on top of that. So it, it's quite a diverse country mm. that we have mm. here, which is great yeah. uh, in many ways, but also... It's a challenge, I'm sure, for people like yourselves mm. with with language. With exactly, trying to get the message out there. Out there as well. Yeah, we would face that in Troy like every other. How do you go about NGO. that? How do you go about kind of bringing that all together? I mean, we're, we're trying to make sure our information is always accessible as possible, you know, easy to read language, um, easy to understand. I know Emma has had to deal with a couple of Ukrainian cases as well because the guardianship issues there can be very difficult if if the parents are still in Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to make and um, we're trying to have as broad a reach as possible with our social media and everything like that as well. And reaching out to our member organizations who are often working on the ground with um, people in their communities who may be new to the community. Um, so that will be one way. I don't know if we're a teen parent support program. Yeah, Samantha, yeah. that's it. You, you look after the, the teen parents. Yeah, support. So, so that, that's very important, I'm sure. Yeah. So the teen parent support program, um, there's 12 different projects around the country. There's four Dublin based. Um, we're in Loud, um, Carlow, Tipperary, um, Kilkenny, Cork, Limerick, Galway. 
Donegal, have I missed any, any heads up? No, yeah, I got them all. So yeah, there's 12 projects around the country and um, the it's it's a national programme. So Tor would, would, would coordinate a lot of the, the, the admin and the management of some of the funds, some of the grants and stuff. So, um, but in, in essence, what the TPSB programme was put together for, it was put together back in the 90s. There was a recognition that there was a growing number of births under the age of, of, of 20 years of age. So it was, um, there was, there was a, I suppose, a lobbying again um, put together and, and the TPSP itself is a ministerial appointment um, by the Department of Children at the time and, and supported by the HSE and then what then became TUSLA. So really what the TPSP does is you have project work leaders and project workers within various different host organizations they could be an organization like like this one like rings end or it could be you know within one of the maternity hospitals or you know in any in, in it's you know a specific um youth service around the, you know various different hosts the hosts are very different all the projects operate very differently but in essence what it does is I suppose the goal is to work work with a teenage teenage a young person a young a young parent or someone who's pregnant for about up until their, their child is about two years of age, and to support them in developing their parenting, and um, remaining in school, open up pathways for like you know education training going into employment, and just generally supporting that parent through the the various different. I mean you know a young parent you know they have their own self development. You know, not issues, but they're not quite there as you know, as a twenty-five or thirty-year-old would be. Hmm. It's not that you wouldn't get there, but now they're a parent, so they have to work on that, and they have to work on themselves. They have to work on being a parent, and all the other you know aspects of what parenting and the you know the financial um, aspects and like getting their own housing, dealing with their own family situation with their own parents, and you know making sure that that they they retain that um, level of support and and working those relationships. And working with their partner as well, like young 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 dads have all these issues, all these struggles as well, and obviously mom has to go through the pregnancy and and you know the early childbearing, and dad has to accept his own new situation and try to maybe try to support the family, or you know and so you have access to, to the child. Like all the different complex, you know I suppose issues that all of us as parents face, mm. they're facing at a very young age. Mm. So it's around supporting, difficult. yeah, it's difficult, and all the complexities come with that, um, you know, this and the social complexities added on to that as well for a young parent can be quite a, quite a challenge. So the TPSP they they work one on one with the parents, they get them into group work, they they it's just you know even even down to you know driving lessons and, and counselling or. You know, like grinds. They're expensive, yeah. So yeah, so they support them in gaining their own confidence, being confident as a parent. That's okay to be a parent, even though you're young, and you know, it's just to build that bond with with their child, and you know, it's just to be happier with with their situation. And I suppose the overall goal is, you know, I suppose the objective is it's like an early intervention for both the parents and and the child so that they have better outcomes, you know, down the road. So that's what you're doing. It's wonderful work. It's exceptional people doing this work, you know, all around the country. Um, It's not available, unfortunately, in every single area, but we're we're working on that at the moment. Sinead, I suppose for you, information and communication is is key to it. And we're we're hearing, you know, Ringside Irish Town Community Centre and, and I suppose meeting the people who look after the, the centres is, is an important part of getting that information out and having the, 
joining up the dots, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really important for us to, to get information out to communities, but also for their communities to be telling us what, what's happening on the ground to inform our policy and our lobbying as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to know what are happening for people in various different situations, whether it's related to housing, social welfare, different family rights issues and legal issues. Um, so that so it's a really symbiotic relationship in that way that we can work with members like Rings End um, to you know understand what's happening for them, but also that we can inform them and provide resources for their clients as well. So that Absolutely. would be huge. Absolutely brilliant. Tell me this before we go. Um, how do people get in touch with you? I know probably the local community are very much together here in, in Rings and Orange Town, but mm. for people that maybe don't uh, and know about you and that, so yeah. how do people get in touch? So our website is tror.ie and you can request a call back there so you can pick a time that you want a call if you want to speak to an information officer. And then our helpline number is 016700120. We're open 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. And then our social media is Facebook, Tror, and then Instagram is the Tror1976. That was a year we were founded. And then um, Twitter is Tror as well. So. Brilliant, brilliant. And th- actually, before we go, funding. Big thing, <laughs> funding. So yeah. how are you funded? Yeah, do you want to talk about Kinship Care's uh, contact for info? Oh yeah, can I just get a, a, a spoken for yeah. Kinship Carers before we go into funding Absolutely, just to yeah. say if you're a Kinship Carer and you would like to get in touch for any reason we can be texted or phoned on 087-148-7124 and Kinship Care within Tora we have our own website kinshipcare.ie if anybody wants to have a look at that. Um, so the Kinship Care piece of our work is funded through the Child and Family Agency which is great because that's how a lot of the children come into Kinship Care um, and we're lucky in that we have funding now it's only for one post but we have it for another three years after this year so we're hoping to continue to build on our work and then Tror I'll hand over to my colleagues yeah. <laughs> so um, the Team Parents Support Programme if you want to contact us it's www.tpsp.ie or you can call me on it's 87 um, and if you're if you're young parents do get in touch if you're a parent of a young parent get in touch or anyone working with them or if you're close you know if you're caring for anyone that is a young parent um, and we are funded by TUSA and the HSC so and there's various other small pieces of funding for, for projects but mostly to, to um, TPSP and the HSC well, thanks very much indeed to all of you, um, Emma, Sinead and Samantha for coming in today as well. You gave a lot of information out there, phone numbers, so if people <laughs> didn't hear them, you can contact us here on rickradio2020 at gmail.com and we'll pass on any queries you have uh, to uh, Sinead, Emma or Samantha. We wish you every success. It's it's thanks, it's a brilliant, Thank you, so you know, children need that care definitely and uh, as I say we're in such a diverse country now that it's important kind of that everyone uh, is looked after and uh, we wish you the best uh, going forward thanks great thank you so much thanks so much thank you come and join us at our retro cafe open weekdays from 10 until 2 here in the community centre come and check out our Karen's culinary delights you're listening to Rick Radio's community news desk podcast well, I'm joined this morning by uh, Mary Lynch, uh, who is a consultant researcher. And Mary, you're doing some work uh, for the South Inner City Drugs and Alcohol uh, Task Force uh, on mental health and understanding of mental health. Can you? 
Please outline first of all what exactly your, your project is at the moment. Yeah. So I, I know people listening, um, when you talk about physical health, it's easy it's easy enough to understand. You know, if you have a cold or a broken leg, um, much harder to talk about mental health. Um, so SICTAF, the South Inner City Drugs Task Force, wants to uh, take a project on to help uh, increase understanding of mental health. So what they did was um, they asked, would I talk to six projects that they fund and talk to the people in the project and ask them what would help increase mental health awareness? Fantastic. And you said six projects and many people would be involved in those six projects. And many people did you have to, well, I suppose, interview? There's loads of people in, yeah. in the project. So the projects were um, Cool Mine, Tiglin, Exchange House, Ruhama, Community Response and RDRD, and I've forgotten one. <laughs> um, so they, um, we, I spoke, well, let's just say over 200 people were involved in the research. Hmm. They had uh, between focus groups and meetings and questionnaires. So that's a, a really large number of people. So it kind of what, what we've come up in the research hmm. is um, very robust in terms of the um, actions and the next steps to as to what would help uh, increase mental health awareness. And when you're starting off the, the program, obviously you're getting everything to, together. What what way do you go about that? Just to get a little bit of an yeah. insight into how you're going to go about getting the research and maybe getting the best out of. Sure. Well, well what what we used was an approach called co-production or co-design. So we involved the people in each step of the way. So we brought people together, uh, brought the organisations together told them what we were going to do and they said, well, look, um, I had a couple of ideas of questions and they said, well, it's better if you use that term, not that term. So don't don't call it, a, call it a meeting, don't call it a consultation, things like that. So we actually spoke to the people who, um, to give us advice about words and language that we can use. So people felt comfortable and safe about speaking about a, a topic that's very personal. So what we did first off, first off was have um, meetings, listening meetings, um, with, with people in each of those organisations. Um, and they, that was facilitated by staff members. So we really uh, 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 had the chat around what, and, and the question was, what would help increase mental health awareness? And people opened up about their story, about not so good experiences. Um, but I also asked, well, what made the difference? What helped? What would you do differently? Um, and uh, that, that, that then helped funnel through into maybe a, a questionnaire. So that was the next step. The first step was listening meetings. Mm. The second step was a questionnaire to narrow down what, what would make the difference and what would help increase mm. mental health awareness. So that was the process. Um, we, did, we did it in two phases. The first phase was with Kulmine, Ruhama, Exchange House uh, and Community Response. And the second phase was with Tiglin. So we've just finished and the two reports now were launched on on Tuesday and they'll be available. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. 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 And, and I suppose, as you said, you're, you're doing this research with these six organisations, but that research 
could be for anybody, for any group, really. Like, obviously, we're down here in the Rings and Irishdown community, and for people in the area here, um, can they use the report? Have they access to it? Um, where to go? Because obviously, mental health at the moment is a big subject. Yeah. You know, and we see that on with our government and on the national airways as well. And uh, thankfully, it's been talked about a little more. Yeah. And I'm sure there are stories that you came across when you were doing your yeah. research. And you're right. It is. It is increasing. And so there's two questions maybe in what you asked. One is. Um, yes, they can find the report in the report. Um, if you looked at the quotes in the report, that's a great starting point. Um, so people, the quotes uh, and the report is about the lived experience of people who have maybe had mental health issues or family members who speak about um, people, their loved ones who have had mental health issues. So I would suggest that uh, you access the report, which will be will be issued next in the next week or so once once it goes through the ringer of the printer um, and then the other thing that I would suggest you do is maybe look at the quotes in the report and have discussions about them in groups say if I read out a couple of quotes absolutely because they're the experiences yeah. exactly and it brings us alive one person said to me when you try and explain to your family it's a nightmare it's too much pain for them they can't understand the insanity of it. And that speaks from the person who's living with a mental health issue and how they don't have the words to explain. A family member said, there's no way on God's earth I would have got through without that family meeting. So that speaks about the support family needs. Mm -hmm. um, and then I suppose, so that gives you an idea of how you, how you can use the, the report to get conversations going but one of the things and the actions and you've just mentioned it there is to have more conversations about it and to have conversations at every level so absolutely right here in RICC that there could be as part of a series of, of talks on everything it could be diabetes one week but it could be mental health awareness the yeah, next week yeah yeah um, and and having somebody in just to open up open up that can of worms and and make people comfortable about talking about it and give permission to for people to talk about the struggle they've had and during the course of, of the different various interviews obviously you're, you're dealing with different humans as we say we all have, have our own makeup kind of as well but did one residing or a couple of residing things come across that was central to, to everybody. Yeah. Well, I think um, one big thing is it's a living with mental health is a work in progress. Okay, for some people, it, it, every day is difficult. Getting up out of bed is a, a struggle, um, and to recognise that it's not something that, for some, goes away. So, um, I think that tells me we have to be patient and have to have more understanding. Um, and not be dismissed, people not to be judged, um, mm. and not uh, and and we need to reduce the stigma, because big word stigma because I, that came up a couple of times when I was reading through, through it as well, Mary and I suppose people do judge and people do put a stigma on it and that probably prevents people from actually about talking it. about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have to change that cycle of stigma. And the only way we can do that is by talking about it. 
but it's not an easy it's very personal it's it's very sensitive so we need help and um, this report can be a starting point but there's other there's references in the report as well so if you there's an organization called sea change and um, and there's a link in the report but anybody listening can look that up s-e-a-c-h-a-n-g-e and it's an irish organization that's looking specifically to address stigma and mental health yeah and they use people who with lived experience uh, as ambassadors to talk about how to address stigma um, and and I think that was another you asked me what jumped out that um, peer support is really important you know yourself if someone else, someone can relate to to what you're going through and maybe have gone through it themselves that's where in, in, in no matter what you do if it's um, if, if it's learning how to drive a car people talk about their first experience if it's learning how to swim or if it's um, getting on an airplane or getting a passport the lived that people talk I've been through that myself this is what I found helpful so sharing people's experience and having that peer support is really 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 important and my mental health we said has the stigma but also kind of this is you know South inner city drugs and alcohol task force so people have issues with drugs and alcohol but they probably haven't because they've meant mental health. Have you come across that? Well, they go hand in hand. Yeah. And as you said, it is a bit of, can be a bit about chicken and egg, what comes first. Um, and for a lot of people, mental health issue comes first and the addiction comes second. But the public don't see it that way. And sometimes the services don't see it that way. Mm. Because what presents and what is more visual is the issue in relation to addiction. Uh, and so people um, get dismissed and judged because of that, whereas maybe their addiction has come about because of the pain that they're experiencing in relation to their mental health issue. Mm-hmm. So what came out loud and clear is more understanding on having a two-track approach um, to recognise and respond to the issues of mental health, but also issues in relation to addiction. Um, but it's it, it's it's is that one of your major recommendations in it? Yeah. It's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. It's a big one. Um, but I have to separate it out. Not everybody, um, with a mental health issue will have an addiction problem. But where where they go hand in hand, it's very troublesome for the individual. Very hard. Yeah. What other recommendations have you have you brought? to the table so, as well yeah so it's it's about um having a safe place so if people are going through a tricky time that they know there's a place they can uh, feel listened to have a one-to-one conversation and have a check-in so um and and people taking the time to listen so as part of services within SICDAF, we're recommending that those services would ask people and how are how how are matters how, how are your how's your mental health um, or if someone says I'm not having a good day say tell me more about that rather than oh yeah we all have bad days so don't dismiss if someone begins to open mm-hmm. that door to say not not feeling good mm. today. Sometimes the dismissive is the fact that we we feel uncomfortable ourselves and how to answer that question really. Yeah. And that brings to another recommendation about training. So how do we help open that door when people kind of give a signal that there's something going on? So how do I 
I'm scared about opening up that conversation. So absolutely, you need some skills to bring, to talk, to help somebody talk more openly and feel feel safe about disclosing. And then another recommendation is signposting what's out there. So when, um, and when people are in distress, it's really hard to, for them to wayfind and where to go. Um, and there are, um, there are services out there, there are helplines, there's um, websites, and there's obviously direct services. Um, but I suppose uh, it's, it's incumbent on all of us as citizens to be a bit more familiar about those. So if someone is in distress, yeah. Say, well, look, I'm not really great about able to talk about it, but I know about this organisation. Would you like me to phone or would you like me to give you some information? So if you're getting stuck saying, I don't know what to say, be honest and say, mm. I don't know. I don't know how to talk to you about this, but I think I, I know of an organisation. Um, they have and trained people to, exactly, to do it. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Um, I suppose it's finding out the organisations known about the organisations because you know and the other side of it I suppose is funding yeah. really you know yeah. and that probably comes from central government more so than anything else for sure um, for sure that there's probably more funding required yeah, yeah. For, for services and, the ba- and having the evidence in this report will help that funding will help get the funding so mm. there's, it's kind of loud and clear what's needed so I would I would say Bring the report, bring the quotes. I mean, uh, um, one one quote here. Imagine someone saying, and this is a, somebody who was using a, a, a drug treatment service, just that we were asked, like, even for you to come here and ask us. I feel it's an important issue, but it's very hush-hush. So that... Under the carpet. Exactly. And also, how grateful people were that people took the time to listen and ask the lived experience what would make a difference, what would help you. They really uh, valued somebody asking their experience. And I think we need to do a lot more of that. Yeah, um, I suppose for these people as well, they want to follow up now. Yeah. You know, they've they've done the questionnaire, yeah. you've done the research, it, yeah. it's the report is there now, it has to go to the next phase of, yeah. of rolling out this r- report for sure uh, for as sure. well and yeah. how do you see that so i see it in a couple of ways i see it yes for using uh, using it as a tool to get more funding in for services to say well look if if 200 people come up with that's a lot of people and um, mm-hmm. so yeah. what we need more money for training and um, and we need training at every level. So you need training for receptionists. You need training a bit like one 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 person said, um, who who is in recovery said, look look what they did for COVID. Everybody got trained. Uh, it this, can be done. This is a bigger yeah. um, public health emergency because look at the number of people that are committing suicide every year. We we it, it's not spoken about. So that money has to go in at all levels. So. From the person at the reception desk to the person answering the phone to the person running groups, there's a baseline training on having and opening up conversations about mental health and then the signposting of what's there. So another recommendation would be to develop a directory of services that's easy to use and keep updated so people know where to go. Um, And then 
there the 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 flip side then is um finding within the services that people have um they're asked so you want um if you want to maybe start the conversation as well and give permission to have the conversation so a bit like what you were we were saying earlier having groups here in RICC well who mm-hmm. wants to talk about the mental health yeah and you'd, if you if you did it that way people might run away but you can find a way of bringing the conversation mm-hmm. so what would help increase um, mm. so people so it, it, there, it, I think we have to be careful and sensitive about how we bring up the topic because it is mm. personal, uh, very personal, very emotional and quite painful. I mean, I got upset doing the interviews when people uh, spoke about their experiences and it triggered things for me. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's deep. Mm. Something we spoke about be, be, before we came on air was the, the fact that um, while we were talking about the conversation, that maybe they, they sh- these conversations should be going on at a, a younger age. Uh, is it something that maybe should be in the schools? Absolutely. That was, and you read the report very well, because that came out loud and clear from all the people who participated said they wanted education at at primary and secondary school level. And they wanted to be um, not just a lecture to kids say, don't take drugs, Mm. rather than um, understanding mental health and and the drug awareness. Yeah, yeah. um, but yes, the education at primary school, secondary school, at um, sports clubs, at youth clubs, and bringing it into conversation. Um, yeah. Are you happy with the way things have gone, Ma- Mary? Yeah, and and, yeah. and and what kind of what do you see? Uh, well, what I'm most happy with was and grateful to um, the people who um, with lived experience put up their hand and felt. Yeah, this is important to talk about. And um, so there was, if if you can think of 200 people in a room said, I want to talk about mental health and I want to talk about the changes. That to me speaks volumes. It's powerful. Um, and the quotes that are there, I hope will resonate for people maybe who have, are going through their own bad days or feeling very worried about a relative or a friend that they can, they can relate to what's in the report and think there may be things there that I can do. So it's a stepping stone um, and it's part of a jigsaw puzzle to help create better understanding. For people who are listening there, is there any contact numbers or, or is, is, do they people contact the, the South Inner City? People contact the South Inner City um, Task Force. So I, I know the email, um, sickdaf at gmail.com. Um, and um, that's the best way the report will be available in the next um, in the next couple of weeks. And I also think I, I mentioned the organisation Sea Change, S E A C H A N G E dot I an Irish organisation that helps look at addressing stigma um, in mental health. Brilliant. And for anyone as well, you can uh, send us an email here at rickradio2020 at gmail.com. That's R-I-C-C radio 2020 gmail.com. And uh, we'll pass on any information we get uh, yeah. to yourself, Mary, or to uh, Sick Daff as, yeah. as well. Uh, appreciate your time for coming yeah. in to talk with us and uh, the best of luck with all the future research. And hopefully uh, it's a subject that the stigma will go out of in uh, years to come. Yeah. Thanks, Mick, and take care, everybody. Yeah.
That's all from the community news desk for this week. My thanks to our guest, Mary Lynch, researcher for South Inner City Drugs and Alcohol Task Force, and to Sinead, Emma and Samantha from Tror. As ever, my thanks to Dylan on sound and editing. If you'd like to promote any events, please send us an email to rickradio2020 at gmail.com. That's rick, R-I-C-C, radio2020 at gmail.com. And please allow two weeks' notice as this podcast is pre-recorded. Check out our website, ricc.ie, for other radio podcasts uh, on Rick Radio. Our new community sports podcast is broadcasting uh, this coming Tuesday, that's tomorrow at 12 noon, and it'll feature no other than Olympic gold boxing champion Michael Carruth, who works as a sports development officer in the area. See you next week. For me, McCandy, have a great week. Thank you.